I thought that we would focus for a few minutes on the ideal of man of God together this morning. Man of God. This particular phrase is used quite often in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, but coming all the way over to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11, notice Paul speaks to Timothy in these words, Thou, O man of God, flee worldly things and pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, Pursue, pursue faith and love, steadfastness and gentleness. But notice he addresses Timothy as man of God. Man of God. Here at Father's Day, those of us who are men need to step back. Starting with me first. And ask ourselves, am I God's man? Am I God's man? In 2 Timothy 3, you notice in verse 16, every scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And notice it, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Am I God's man, man of God? We wouldn't dare have the time this morning, certainly not even in a series of Sundays, to address all that needs to be said about man of God. We will boil it down to just three characteristics of the man of God together this morning. Before we get to those three, though, I want to continue in some personal reflection because I look to the words of Jesus and I see what he's disappointed in. For example, in Matthew 23, Jesus is talking to some men, some Pharisees. Matthew 23, 27, he looked at them, he said, You are all whitewashed tombs. Because a whitewashed tomb outwardly appears beautiful, but inwardly, It is full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And Jesus goes on. And he looked to those men. And he said, you appear righteous. You're in the right places. You say the right things. But inwardly, you are full of hypocrisy and a bunch of lawlessness. Now when Jesus points that out, that makes me wonder... Does he look to me in the same way? I think about one of Jesus' followers who ends up doing some writing, Peter. And you run over to Peter in 2 Peter 2. And Peter has some things to say about some ungodly men as well. For example, in 2 Peter 2.12, he says, You all are a bunch of 
irrational animals. You're acting like irrational animals. Animals just basically act on survival instinct. God expects more of us than simply getting by or doing what somebody else says to do or doing what is expected of us. He expects more of us than that. You skip on down to 2 Peter 2, about verse 17, he looks to the same group of men and he says, You are waterless streams. Streams without water. What good does that do anyone? And it, it is tragic for a man of God or a man who is walking on this earth taking in air and taking in food. It's tragic for a man created in the image of God to be moving along in life and doing very little good, offering very much of nothing to anyone who is looking for spiritual refreshment. And so it behooves us to come down to Scripture and notice about three qualities of the man of God, which, as I said, many could be listed, and you would probably do just as well on your own as as anywhere else. But here we go. Let's begin. God's man will resist the spirit of the age. God's man will resist... The spirit of the age. And I look at Romans 12 verse 2. Be not conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The world there means the character of a people in a particular time period. The character of people in a particular time period. He said don't be conformed to the character of your age. You see... The world and the Lord will never walk together because there is, Matt read for us this morning before class, John 12, along about verse 31, Jesus refers to the prince of this world. Okay, that's the devil. The devil controls much of the world. The world and God does not see eye to eye. And so don't be conformed to the spirit of the age, but resist it. Be transformed in your renewing of your mind by the word of God. Now we think about some examples from the Bible of men who did just this. And one that comes to my mind is Samuel. Samuel. If you run back to the first few chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, we run into this young man, Samuel. And you remember his mother, Hannah. And how much she desired to have a son. And she prayed for her son. She called him Samuel because his name means one who's been asked of uh, by God. And one asked of uh, for God. And then she devoted him. She made a vow to the Lord that she would give him to the service of the Lord. As the Lord answered her prayer. And she does just that. Samuel gets a little older. She takes him to Eli the priest and allows him to basically grow, under, grow up under the mentorship of Eli and learn to serve as a priest as Eli is doing in those days. Samuel remains faithful. He is a judge all the days of his life. 
Well, in fact, if you want to notice a couple of verses, if you're back there in 1 Samuel uh, 2, and look at verse uh, 26, notice it, it says he grows in stature, but he also grows in favor with the Lord. Okay. That's, a, that's a key verse. 1 Samuel 2, 26, he grows in stature, he grow, he's growing up. But as he's growing up, he's growing up in favor with the Lord. He's doing as the Lord would have him do. He is learning as what the Lord would want him to learn. He is preparing himself to be a man of God. Now, he is an example of someone who is able to resist the spirit of his age. Okay. There were several disadvantages as Samuel uh, is growing up. I want you to, li- I want you to notice these. First of all, Samuel grew up in the days of the judges. This is the days of the judges. And if you look at Judges 17, verse 6, or chapter 21, verse 25, it says about the same thing. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's the day that Samuel is growing up. A time when people were doing whatever they thought in their own eyes was right. And that's quite similar uh, to our day today. And then another disadvantage that Samuel faced was in his own family. Now, granted, his mother was very godly. Very godly. Hannah. You look at his father, though. His father's name was Elkanah. And I'm not saying he's the most ungodly man you find in Scripture, but his qualities do not rise to Hannah's because Elkanah, he has chosen to have two wives. Two wives. He has another wife. And you'll remember that her name is Peninnah, and Hannah, one of his wives... Uh, Elkanah's wife, she couldn't have children for a while. But Peninnah could, and it caused a great deal of friction in the family. Now, Elkanah should have known better because from the very beginning of time, God said, you shall leave your father and mother and shall cleave unto your wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Elkanah has left that original design of God, that original command of God. So Samuel is growing up with, with some friction in the family. Does anybody relate to that? So you've got a world around him that does whatever is right in their own eyes. And then at home he has a great deal of friction that he is encountering from time to time. And then as he's serving there with Eli, do you recall the condition of Eli's sons? Samuel is not a son of Eli. He's kind of like a spiritual son of Eli, but Eli has his own sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and do you recall how corrupt they were? They became very corrupt. When you look at 1 Samuel 2, 12, 13, on down, and then on down to verse 17, and keep reading 1 Samuel 2, 22, you find out his sons became very corrupt. Okay, how corrupt were they? Well, they had a great contempt. They had a great disrespect for the worship of God. They, they corrupted and were selfish in their handling of the worship of God. And you can read about that, 1 Samuel 2, 12 through about verse 17. In fact, it caused 
the scripture there calls uh, Eli's sons vile, V-I-L-E. Uh, the English Standard Version calls them worthless, worthless. But the original word just simply means having a, a low regard for sacred things. Okay? Making light of sacred things. That's the sort of example that Samuel had growing up. And then if you notice in 1 Samuel 2, 22 or so, that not only were Eli's sons doing that to the worship, but also they were beginning to have uh, sexual relations with other women who were serving there close to the tent of the sacred things in those days. They were having sexual relations with different women. They were really, really uh, corrupt. And so look what Samuel was facing as he's growing up. Okay. He's facing friction at home. He's facing a world that simply is, is, is lawless and, and trying to rule themselves. And then right there in, in the religion, okay, right there among the, the religious people, right there among the people of God was corruption. Okay. Of course, all these different various departures we see in our day today as well. But I want you to understand that a man of God, and this is something that I must look to myself. Guys, we've got to look to ourselves. Am I resisting the spirit of the age? Am I, am I conforming to the world or am I being transformed by God? If you're transformed by God, you will not conform. Some practice more conformity than they do transformity, but we must be transformed by God so we will not be following the ways of the world. We also think about Daniel. And we read in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8 that he purposed in his heart. It's a great statement there. The English Standard Version uses the word resolve. He purposed in his heart. He resolved in his heart that he would not be defiled by anything of the kings. This is when Daniel and others were taken into Babylonian captivity. They're away from home. They're away from sacred things. They're away from family. But he purposed in his heart he would not be defiled by the king's food or the king's wine or any of the king's religions. Now, it would be difficult to find a more corrupt way, a corrupt environment than what Daniel faced because he was serving under King Nebuchadnezzar, a very corrupt king for most of his life, and then later under King Darius and and neither one were godly. There might have been some change in Nebuchadnezzar late in his life, but mostly it was an ungodly reign of terror. And Daniel was maintaining his religion, maintaining his faith under, under this type of environment. In fact, if you look back to Daniel uh, chapter 6, and I think it's along about verse number you'll see that Daniel's enemies, Daniel's, um, well, enemies, men who just did not appreciate uh, his faith, it says, um, verse 4, Daniel 6 and verse 4, that um, they sought to find a ground of complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. Daniel 6 verse 4. 
Notice how that he was living right in a world that's gone wrong. He is resisting the spirit of the age. And the news from God is this can happen with any man of God at any time in history, even today. We can, we can live right in a world that's gone wrong. Now, if God considered Eli's sons vile and worthless because they were corrupting the worship and because they, they laid down with women they shouldn't be laying down with, just think about what God thinks about the sort of various sexual uh, departures that are taking place in our world today. But nonetheless, God looks to us and he says, you can still live right in a world that has gone wrong. You can do this. It's been done before. I'll be with you. You can, you can continue to do this. It may be that a young man is at school and hardly anyone at school regards God. A young man can work somewhere making a decent living and yet at work he can see and experience some of the most vile language and hear of some of the most nasty habits that uh, he, perhaps he never heard before he started work there. Nonetheless, God says that person, that man, can live right in a world that has gone wrong. You can be that flower in the desert. Even if your own family, even if your own uh, people of God, even if your own church is just half-hearted, or if your, own, if your own people at home are not living up to the faith that they profess, yet you young man, you man of God, you can be strong for the Lord. And so the first characteristic of, of a man of God is that he resists the spirit of the age. A second characteristic I'd like for us to just consider is that the man of God, he moves with passion. He moves with passion. You struggle for words to, to describe what, the, what God expects of us. But if we look down to John 2, 13 to 17, this is the time when Jesus was quite um, frustrated with the religion, the Jewish religion of his day. They had turned the temple area into a trading place. And he took a whip and he ran out some animals he overturned uh, some of the tables upon which they were, they were making their gains and they were trading their different types of money. He overturned those tables. He ran everybody out of there. He said, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. And then the, the scripture from Psalm 69 verse 9 is applied to Jesus on this occasion. And it says, the zeal of the Lord has eaten him up. Now perhaps that's the best way to describe the man of God at this point in our lesson. Okay. The man of God moves with passion. In other words, the zeal of the Lord has consumed him. We have seen people consumed with different things in their lives. A man can be consumed of his possessions. 
We read about that in Luke 12. And Jesus tells a story about a certain rich man whose, whose lamb brought forth much fruit to where he would tear down his barns and build bigger barns. He is consumed with himself and with his possessions. I've seen men be consumed uh, with just women, just with one woman, but or with many, or just one, and everything that 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 particular lady would would say or do or think, he would follow that exactly in step. He consumed with her. We know what it means to be eaten up with something, or to be consumed by something. What God expects of the man of God is that he would be, he would be consumed by zeal for the Lord. He would move with passion. Two or three examples come to my mind. But before I get to these examples, I want to address a, a problem. In trying to find a word to describe it. I'm going to use the word passive, P-A-S-S-I-V-E, passive. Okay. To a great extent, men today have become passive, inactive, unwilling, unwilling to confront that which they know is not right. Whether it be in themselves, or whether it be in their city, whether it be in their church, whether it be in their nation, we have become men, and I'm talking to myself, first and foremost, but we are, we are consumed with, with being passive. It reminds you, maybe the ideal comes from the story Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan. And how the man who was robbed and, and injured and left to die on the side of the path that the priest and Levite came by. And they passed by on the other side so as not to be bothered by what it would take to help that man's condition. They were passive. The man of God cannot be that. I think about a man by the name of Mordecai. We find him in the book of Esther. And though he's not Esther's real father, he is a relative and he brings Esther up. And she becomes queen of the land. She's part of a land that doesn't hold favor toward the Jewish people. And through different processes, there was coming a decree from the very king himself that at some point in time, the, all the Jews would be extinguished. They would be taken out. They would all be killed. She doesn't know about this decree yet. So you look down in Esther chapter 4, you see what Mordecai does. Verses 1 and 2. Mordecai, he puts on sackcloth and ashes. He covers himself in an outfit of definite mourning and grief. It is to 
it's just when you would wear something that would show that something is up. There is an alarm here. I'm, I'm sounding the alarm is what Mordecai is doing. He goes down to the middle of the city where there's the most people and he cries out against the decree of the king. And then he moves from there over, on, over to the king's gate and does the same thing. To Finally, he gets the attention of Esther and she sends a messenger to find out all that's going on in the land and she will move uh, to keep her people alive. But it starts with the passion of Mordecai. Something is up. Something is being done. Something wrong has been decreed. What does he do? He yells against it. He cries against it. Think of Acts chapter 14 when Paul and Barnabas are in the area of Lystra, Derby. They heal a man. Paul heals a man who had been crippled in his feet since birth. This caused the different uh, idol worshipers in that area to come and try to make gods out of Barnabas uh, and Paul. And so much so they came and brought uh, items of worship and and threw it at their feet. Okay. Different types of, of impressive looking uh, limbs and, and garlands from trees and just all sorts of things. They wanted to create a worship service in honor of Paul and Barnabas. And they came in. They started, Paul and Barnabas ripping their clothes and said, We are men of light passions like, like you. We're men just like you. And we're here to tell you to worship the true God. One who made heaven and earth. He did not leave himself without witness. He has done good. He's the one that give us, gives us these fruitful seasons. He's the one that's, he's the reason that you're alive and you're worshiping us. There's a true God you ought to worship. They weren't going to be passive about it. It bothered them deeply that they would even entertain, that some woman even entertain worshiping any other God other than the true God of the Bible. In Acts 17, 16 and 17, Paul is in Athens. He's waiting on Timothy and Silas to join him. And as he is there, he begins to observe the city and how it was totally given over to idolatry. And the text there says in Acts 17, 16 and 17, that Paul's spirit was disturbed. His spirit was stirred in him. His spirit was provoked in him. Okay. He didn't go off to a cave and cry. He didn't just get depressed. But he went to the marketplace. And he went into to the city of Athens where people were gathered and having different discussions and he began to sit down, sit down with them and talk to them about the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Jesus, the hope that that gives us, the eternal life and forgiveness of sins and the true God. If you look down to Acts 17, after just a little while, a few believed, not many, a few believed, but he planted a lot of seeds and if he had not gone and began to talk about the true God, what about those few that did believe? Paul just couldn't sit. He could not be passive. He couldn't just sit there and do nothing. 
That's what a man of God, man of God does. A man of God has to move. It's within his soul that he has to do something. He has to make some effort. That's what Paul does. A man of God will resist the spirit of his age. And he will move with passion. And then the third characteristic is a man of God. He will equip himself with the word of God. The man of God will equip himself with the word of God. In order to do the battle that God wants him to do. In in other words, his heart is full of the commands of God. What commands are that? Well, Ephesians 5 verse 11 says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. When we see a work of darkness, we are to expose it. We are to show that it is not of the Word of God, and we are to encourage people to stay away from that work of darkness, whatever that might be. Or, 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 15, Love not the world is a command of God, neither the things that are in the world. Whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, these things are not of the Father, but are of the world. Remember a minute ago we said that the things of the world will never be the things of the, of, of the Father, of God. All these things, John says in 1 John two fifteen and 17, all these things are passing away, but he that does the will of the Lord will abide forever. You see, the man of God equips, equips himself with the Word of God, and that means his heart is full of the commands of God. Commands like James 4, verse 4, it says that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Or James 1, 27, it says, uh, keep yourself unspotted from the world. Or with the passage we mentioned earlier from Romans 12, verse 2, be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Going back just a second to our previous point. A man must be full of passion, move with passion. Why is it that we conform so much? Why is it that it's the people of the world that's always making the plans and then pressuring us to follow their plans? Why is it that at school it's the people outside of Christ who are making all the plans and then they come to our young people and say, well, here's what you need to do because everybody else is doing it. Why can't we teach our young people? Why can't we bring our young men up in such a way that they become the trendsetters? Instead of the followers. Why can't we rear our young men to become leaders for God like God expects instead of of them being always pressured to be the followers? Why can't it be that our young people are making the plans for godliness instead of being pressured by those outside of Christ to follow their plans of ungodliness? And so the man of God moves with passion, but also in the third place, he equips himself with the Word of God, which means that his heart is full 
all the commands of God, but also his heart is full of the love of God. He equips himself with the love of God, which is part of the word of God. As we, as we just read there in 1 John 2, did you notice that the more you get to know God, the less you're going to love the world? Because the more you love God and appreciate what he stands for, then the less love you're going to have for the world. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. And Jesus shows us that when he came to this earth. He, shows, he showed us the Father. John 14, 7 through 9, Jesus said, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And notice how Jesus acted. That's a real man. That's a real man. We can just get our young men to follow Jesus. Look what Jesus did. Look how he treated people. Look what he stood for. Look what he talked about. Look who he rebuked. Look what he rebuked. Because Jesus was meek and lowly in heart. Pride was never part of him. And the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes was never part of Jesus. We need to follow his steps, don't we? So the, the man of God will equip himself with the word of God, which means that his heart is full of the commands of God, but also that his heart is full of the, the love of God. And his heart is also, as he equips himself, it's full of the church of God. The church. I'm talking about fundamentally the church. What is the church fundamentally? Well, it is, it, the church is full of people who respond to the call of God. The call of God. That's what the word church means. To be called out. To be called out. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says we're all called by the gospel. How do we respond to the gospel? A man of God responds to that call of scripture and responds to it with a full heart and a devoted life. His heart is also full of the home of God. So think about this. The man of God, he equips himself with the word of God. What's in the word of God? Well, lots of things. But we know the commands of God are there. The church of God is there. The love of God is there. But also, the, he fills his heart with the home of God. Heaven up above. That's what he lives for. It's amazing how much we focus on the earth when all that is precious is in heaven. Think about what the Bible teaches for a second. God the Father is in heaven, Matthew 6, verse 10. Jesus is in heaven, Colossians 3, verse 1. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sit it at the right hand of God. Where Christ is, on his throne. Christ is in heaven. Colossians 1, 5 says, our hope is in heaven. Jesus teaches in Matthew 6, 19 to 21 that our treasures are in heaven. Luke 10, verse 20 teaches that our names are in heaven. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 teaches that our, our citizenship is in heaven. Look at all the things that we are placing in heaven. Look at all the important matters. Where are they at? They're in heaven. And we focus so much on earth. You see, the man of God, he understands that life here is not long. It's like a vapor, James says, James 4, 13 and 14. 
appears for a little time, he understands that, that life is like a vapor. He understands that the things of this world does not satisfy. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 10 says, He that loves riches will not be satisfied with riches. And it's that way, not just with riches, but with everything of this world. Whatever we love of this world will not be satisfied <clears throat> with whatever that is. We'll want more of that, or we'll, or we'll want that and something else. This world does not satisfy. As John tells us a moment ago, 1 John 2 16 and 17, this, the things of this world will pass on. They do not last. <clears throat> As I said, there are many things we could say about what Scripture calls the man of God. But I trust each of us would agree that the man of God will resist the spirit of the age. He will also be a man who who moves with passion for God, not just passion, but the zeal of the Lord. And then also, he will equip himself with the Word of God, which includes a bunch of commands, but it also includes the love of God. It, it, it includes responding to the call of God. It includes having a great appreciation for the home of God. It is said that Alexander the Great learned quite a few things as he conquered so much of the world back in his day. It is said that as he was coming to his last days that he requested of his servants that when they put him in the casket that they leave his hands outside the casket as they bury him as people pass by to show respect, he wanted his hands outside the casket so that all the people that were coming by could see that the man who had conquered so much was taking absolutely nothing with him. The man of God understands that the home with God is of most importance. It begins with God. We can't have a zeal for God unless we begin our relationship uh, with Him. We're all sinners. We all come short. But God has made it possible through the blood of His Son that we can begin a walk with Him. We can receive forgiveness of sins. We can, with our mouth, make the confession that Jesus is the Lord. We can put... The Lord own in baptism and that brings forgiveness of sins just like the Lord teaches in various passages. Paul says in Romans 6, 3 and 4 that we're baptized into the death of Jesus so that we can be raised to walk in newness of life. If we can in any way study, if we can pray with you this morning, if there's some, is there some obstacle, is there some sin is there some weakness that is definitely from the world that's in your life that you want to you want to be rid of that? It begins with prayer and study. It continues in faithfulness. Can we assist anyone? Can we assist each other this morning, right now, as we stand together, as we sing?